Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. of the Art of War, 37 through 46. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be finishing up our chapter on the theory of the Art of War, with 37 through 46 being our last sections of it, before we move on to some different ideas of Klauswitz's. Uh, I think we've heard quite enough of this long-titled chapter, and I have had quite enough of trying to fit it in very quickly and... Uh, also be understood in that little intro section. So, looking forward to moving on from here uh, myself, and uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. Before we get into that, though, I am really digging in hard to the Gene Stealer cult. I am finally finished building what I need, uh, list-wise. I've got a few more things to put together, and I'm sure as I'm playing through, I will identify certain units or uh, combinations that I want to try more of in the future, uh, but for now, I've got what I need. So I'm going to start playing some games with them, uh, a bit more developed. I had a, a game a little bit earlier, before this episode recorded, where I went up against Toto and his Grey Knights. And I had a, a kind of a tester list, some different ideas I was working with. I had, I had no intention of it actually doing well. I know we should you know, play to win, and I certainly gave my best, no doubt. But the way I built the list was mostly to see what kind of strengths and weaknesses various elements of the army had. And so I, I gained a lot of information from it, and it's going to help me uh, build lists in the future that I think not only vibe well with the strengths and weaknesses of the army itself, but also with the way that I play. Because you, you have to have that. You have to have the way you play as well as the army or the form or the style of the, the unit that we're with. It's got a vibe. Otherwise, uh, we, we fall into these hitches. We fall into these uh, weird moments where things get stuck. They shouldn't be stuck. And so, again, with the Gene Stealer cult, it's they're very different from anything I've ever played before. So I'm trying to figure out my flavor with them. And that's about it. I always struggle with this intro section. It used to be easier when I had Thumbs or, or Oni around to, to yammer for a little bit longer. But uh, when it's just me, it's like, well, I, I've been working on models. I've been reading books. And I've, yeah, that's, you, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> let's just, let's just jump into this last section of Klauswitz's real quick before I stumble over myself too much more. And what we're looking at here is an idea of taking science to art. In our last episode... We were talking about how it is impossible to form positive theory when it comes to military science, at least when it comes to like a strategic level. Again, in any given era, with any given uh, technology set, 
tactical strategies or, or, or tactical theories, excuse me, can be formed. Uh, because you're dealing with a very, very small area. And a lot of times, if you have uh, room clearing drills or, you know, a three fire system or whatever the case may be, it, it, again, whatever time period that we're in, that remains fairly consistent. There may be slight innovations, but for the most part, what works, works. Strategy, on the other hand, is completely nebulous. It is really hard to predict where exactly strategy is going to need to go. And tactics are easy. Take that hill. The strategy says, why do we take that hill? Is that hill on the way, on the way to something else? Is the hill part of a greater movement? How important is that hill? So, when we're dealing with strategy, we have to understand that there is no magic book for it. I looked for it. I did. Uh, throughout the course of my career, let's call it, I have read many, many, many books looking for the perfect strategy, the perfect theory to fit any situation. And it does not exist. And that's kind of what Clausewitz is driving at here. So any, any real strategy that we can develop has, or and any real theory towards strategy that can be developed has to be from experience with the ends and the means that are going on. Do we understand what is required? What is the cost of what is going for? What, what various things need to happen? There's a reason that most generals started off as less than that. You know, as it, it, most, uh, you know, a member of the staff or a chief of staff, usually officers moving up. But the idea is that they are slowly acclimated to more and more and more responsibility, to more and more and more authority. And so this, this, uh, this system puts people in power who are in a position to make decisions. And at that point, it is hoped that they have had a broad enough amount of experience that they can apply that in the situations, that they can, they can make this, this theory possible. Because limited theory is possible, limited. But it has to be conformed to personal experience or the current state of history. If we really study the Zeitgeist, if we really study what exactly people are doing, what the but the meta is of our sport or our community or of warfare. We can do it that way too, but personal experience is often the most important aspect of developing this limited theory because it's really all you can definitely draw on. As we've discussed, we can read Clausewitz. We can understand uh, Clausewitz to a limited capacity and learn from Clausewitz, but we cannot understand these concepts in the same way that he did. That's just not possible. We can read some of his ideas, but there's, there's a certain amount of knowledge that is just ineffable. And, and so the personal experience is by far the best teacher. And when we do that, we have to remain practical. And we avoid these abstruse uh, disquis disquisitions. That's his word, abstruse disquisitions. The subtleties and chimeras. Basically, we're trying to stay away from a whole lot of nuance. You know, broad things that are very practical. And it can adjust to just about any situation. No, no rigid plans. We're not looking at rigid plans. We're looking at things that are more guidelines than actual rules, as it were. So when we're looking at this analysis, right, we're trying to figure out within our own personal experience what works and what doesn't, how we can get to our ends with whatever means are presented to us. How far should our analysis of those means be carried? Well, we're looking at elements in a separate form than they present themselves in, in the field. So if we're looking at 
you know, artillery stuff. We want to be looking not just at the guns themselves and the people firing them, but also the manufacturers for not only the weapon itself, but for the ammunition. We are looking for the wagons and the horses that are supposed to get those weapons to where they're supposed to be. There's a whole lot to have to do with artillery or with troops as a, as a general rule. You know, you got these people, but there's a whole lot of elements that go into keeping those people. You've got feeding them, you've got giving them places to sleep making sure that they're armed and clothed. A lot of different elements present themselves here and they need to be, uh, you know, kind of, kind of understood. At this point, I want to pick a fight with a dead guy because Klauswitz um, in this section was talking about how you don't need to understand when we're dealing with another country, if we're invading another country and we've of course done this analysis, um, we're invading somebody else. We do not need to understand the way their state works, the way their government works, their education level, or what they're learning, how, how they learn, or the general culture. Don't need to consider any of that. Because what he is assuming is that we're relying on the European standard. Remember, the wars of his lifetime were not against other powers. They were not against folks on other continents for the most part, for the vast majority of it. It was a matter of these these intercontinental fights that were taking place in Europe. You know, you had Turkey, which was also still a part of Europe, and of course Greece and Italy and Spain and everybody, everybody north of there was taking part in this. And so from his perspective, you didn't need to understand absolutely everything about your opponent because they were generally the same. Read about the same stuff, looked at the same sorts of artwork, kind of listened to the same music. You know, they're the same. But... What he fails to take into account is what happens when we go up against an enemy who is not from around here, who thinks differently than we do, who has different technological capabilities than we do. This is something that we have gotten into trouble with many, many times. Even in my own country, in America, we have gone up against folks and not understood. Not understood who we were fighting, or, or how we were fighting them, or how they were fighting. There's a lot of pressures, too. You know, this, it, it, we're, we're fighting in a completely different era for the, about the past century. It's going to be a completely different era because there's so much international attention on everything that takes place. And so when you are an invading power or you are a larger power, you're, under, you're, you're held to a higher degree of scrutiny. People expect you to behave in a certain way. If the full might of America had been unleashed on Afghanistan... It would not have been pretty. And there would not have been a whole lot of people left to habit the country, let alone fight. And, but the international response would have been huge. There's no way that America would have gotten away with that. There's no way that there wouldn't have been sanctions and declarations of outrage. And so we need to understand that stuff. We can't just go in and smash. We can't just go in and rely on the European standard. We look at conventional warfare and we go into a place where they're exercising guerrilla warfare, uh, we're not equipped to deal with that. Their form of warfare is directly modeled off of conventional warfare, but it's counter to it. So I, I disagree with him heavily. We do need to understand the state and what we're dealing with in terms of who governs and how they are, are chosen to govern, how they are respected as governors, what the education level is, what they can tolerate in terms of education, and then, of course, the culture at large. 
And these things are often tossed out the window, much like Clausewitz suggests doing, but I would suggest not. So backing up a little bit, we're looking at these means, we're looking at um, analyzing all of these means. We need to simplify that knowledge because it's a lot of stuff to process. Again, when we're looking at all these different processes, we're, we're kind of expanding our vision and then we need to contract it because there's a whole lot of irrelevant information there. I do not need to know the tire width of a wagon that is hauling an artillery piece. Don't need to know it. There's some things that are just beyond our necessary. Again, I think a general or a commander it needs to understand at least the, the simple version of everything that takes place underneath their command. But there's a lot of minutia that would get in the way, that would get in the way of the overall the overall movement of the army and the overall movement of the development of, of the theory and the tactics of said army. Using this idea, of course, of, of simplifying things and making sure that there's not too much in the way between our thought and the actual execution of the plan, he says explains the, the growth of uh, great generals and why they usually aren't men of learning. He's arguing that folks who are, they're not encumbered by too much knowledge. They're not held back by sitting there and going, well, if this person said this, but if this person said this, and like debating with themselves about all this other stuff, no. No, these great generals act because they are unencumbered by all of this knowledge. He goes on to argue that the most distinguished of these generals are not from the learned or erudite classes. And I, I don't understand... Sometimes I don't understand what he's talking about because, again, I look back at Frederick the Great, not that far removed from our, from our friend here, from Mr. Uh, Clausewitz. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, <laughs> he was very much a man of learning. Even if it was forced upon him, he was still very much a man of learning. And I would uh, hearken back, to, again, with, within my country, we look at the Civil War. A large number of the commanders, and certainly the upper echelon commanders, uh, when you're dealing with both the Union side and the Confederacy, were educated at West Point. They were very well educated. Nowadays, you look at the military, and the vast majority of our, especially our high-level generals, really, you know, lieutenant colonels and above, you're looking at a whole lot of degrees. There's a lot of masters and PhDs walking around inside the Pentagon. So, I disagree with Clausewitz. I, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain training that needs to go into place to say, okay, when we're in the action, all of this other stuff goes away. We need to focus on this, right? Again, letting our, our minds get in the way certainly doesn't help. I think that's what he's saying, but I also don't think that we should just assume that a dummy makes a better commander. I, <laughs> I disagree with that thoroughly. Um, and, but this is, this is kind of tying into these former contradictions though, because knowledge, the more knowledge we have, the more it can get jumbled together the more we can be considering too much when we make our decisions. You know, as a moralist, the more books you've read on morals or ethics, the more complicated any decision is going to be. Because you sit there and you think, well, what did Machiavelli say about this? Oh, what did Hobbes say about this? What about Kant? What about Kierkegaard? And you're sitting there just driving yourself mad when most every, everybody else is like, eh, this is my general impression of good, this is my general impression of evil. I'll just kind of go through life. And they do just fine. They do just fine. But some people need to make it more complicated. But genius, he says, follows no theory. It is not held back by any established ideas. And, and on this account, he says that, you know, we're kind of figuring that all use of knowledge is denied. 
And the best time for genius is when everything is ascribed to natural talent. Some people are just gifted leaders. Some people are just better at the whole Kudel thing. Some people take to this craft faster than others. I've known people who walked onto the field in Belagarth, physical wargaming, and did better than I had done after five years of practice. Just walking in off the street. So there are people, there are people that are absolutely gifted individuals when it comes to these things. And these free thinkers, they reject all theory and they're only bound by their innate talent. But they're also bound by that lack of knowledge. They might go bounding in to a situation that could be easily avoided if they understood even the most basic principles of combat. Because knowledge, when we're dealing with military science, and really with, with most places, in, 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 you know, it's a certain stock of ideas that is necessary for understanding whatever goes forward. Our knowledge, of, like our medical knowledge, for instance, would help us understand bacterias or infections or broken bones or whatever. Knowledge of military science helps you analyze military situations. Knowledge of uh, baking leads to having delicious food that then you have to work off after the holiday season. I'm not pointing fingers, except in the mirror. <laughs> but this helps because these things are acquired. They're not innate. We're not, uh, most of these geniuses, they're, they're few and far between. They come once in age, if that. The vast majority of us, you, me, the vast majority of us are not geniuses in this way. We must acquire our knowledge and our talent through learning, through knowledge. But we can't let it get in the way, is the idea. To be learned, but not to let it get in the way, that's the real trick. That's the balancing act that we're called upon to perform. Because everybody else has said, you know, be knowledgeable, expand your knowledge base. Even Klaus Fitzsimmons himself, early on in this book, is talking about expanding one's knowledge base. And using all of these different elements to kind of funnel in. But not to the point in which it clogs the drain. Not to the point in which it gets in the way. Can't be that free thinker. We can't go that far. But we also can't be a stone that is too set in their ways to really change anything. And therefore doesn't get anything done. These things need to follow from each other. And this knowledge, as we have talked about before, any of this knowledge is and must be suitable to said position. We find ourselves occupying a tactical role, whether, let's, let's think about paintball, or again, you know, Belagarth, SCA, something like that. In this tactical situation, there is certain knowledge that is going to be important. The enemy across from us, how they are arrayed, what kind of weapons they may have, what kind of training they have, how well they work together as a group. This is knowledge that we are going to need in a very real, flesh-and-blood, close-up-and-personal sort of way. That is the sort of knowledge that we're going to need there. We don't necessarily need to know everything about their overall troop movements, if indeed that's even happening. We don't need to know whatever in negotiations may be occurring above us. We don't need to know their logistics. We don't need to know their even their command structure for the most part. We need to know who they are what they generally do on the field, and how to counter it. That's what's important. That's the knowledge that's required at a tactical level, like a very simple tactical level. At an operations level, when you're dealing with, you know, a particular area of the warfare, yeah, logistics suddenly become more important. Communication becomes way more important. That 
chain of command that we're looking at on the other side and making sure that we're mindful of the other enemy movements, not just the one engagement, that's the knowledge required. Then we go above that to the actual strategic command level where all of these things are being taken into account. There's no knowledge that isn't useful at that level. So it needs to be made suitable and it's required for various things. Some, some knowledge that is required of one position is absolutely not required of another. And certain people are going to be prone to various situations based upon where their natural knowledge comes from or where their natural talents are leading them. And again, this is all very much based on what station or command level that they may hold. <clears throat> and this knowledge though, this knowledge in war is easy. It's pretty easy to acquire. We have war colleges, we have our you know, our patri compatriots, our, our, you know, our peers who can teach us. We have all these old books that we can read. We have personal experience. There's a lot of ways. There are a lot of ways to acquire knowledge in war or knowledge, even knowledge of war. However, using it is not very easy because there's a difference between understanding something and executing that understanding between potential and kinetic energy. And when this knowledge is gained from multiple sources, of course, from, from everything we understand, from all the sports we've played, from all of the videos we've watched, from all the books we've read, this knowledge comes in. But the difficulty comes in executing it in the actual field because there are so many different things, so many different variables that usually cannot be very well accounted for outside of that combat. You know, we can't account for the morale of the troops. Again, we, we can kind of estimate it but honestly you can never tell if people are going to cut and run who's going to be brave who isn't and if if one squad starts to cut and run how much of a ripple effect is that going to have how much of the how much of our plan overall plan is going to be disrupted by this so the execution of this knowledge again is limited by reality and it's very difficult we can we can think of this overarching thing i used to think of these grand strategies and these, these uh, like very, very, very cool tactical scenarios. And I'd pull people in on them, whether the grand strategy was in a video game or this tactical thing was on the battlefield. I'd pull other people into me and I'd say, look at this grand strategy I came up with. And in theory, it sounded fantastic, brilliant even. Take the field by storm, take our enemies completely by surprise and outwit them in a clever and vicious fashion. And then it hit the field. And the first time something went wrong, so the first time something like hit the hit the the wrench in the gears, the unexpected, the whole plan collapses. Because one thing relies on this thing, relies on this thing, going into any 40k battle, for instance, with an overall plan in your head that what must be executed exactly is a recipe for disaster. Because what if something goes wrong? What if something goes wrong with one of those steps? And that exact execution gets messed with. Well, that's bad. We found ourselves in a very bad position at that point. So, this actually, and again, this experience, the experience that we get from the various levels, from lieutenant to the captain to the major, LC, colonel, all the way up. The experience that we're getting, yeah, and even, even within the enlistment ranks, even if we go no further than to tactile, tactical. You know, private, PFC, specialist, sergeant, all that good stuff. Even that. The experience that we're getting makes the knowledge easier to use. Makes it less than just a nebulous thing. So thusly, Klauswitz suggests 
a couple of different things about the nature of the general, about the person that we're looking for to be in command, in like command, command. And he says they don't necessarily need to be well-learned. I would argue that they don't necessarily have to not be well-learned, but they don't. I, I would also say that they don't have to be, you know, again, just a good number of the commanders throughout history were not very well-educated, and they did do very well. Now, they were different periods of history that required different things, blah, 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 blah. But still, the point stands. But even though they are not required to be super learned, they are required to be well-versed in the affairs of the state, making sure that they understand the motives of the particular government, the expectations of whatever governing body is above them, the, the mood and morale of the people. That is something very important to consider uh, that is also one of the affairs of state, limitations imposed because of international pressure. You know, these, these, again, these things are necessary. You, you don't necessarily have to be a physicist, you know, an award-winning quantum physicist, but to understand how that part works is definitely necessary, especially the higher and higher you get. Do you think the folks, the generals and whatnot who are in the Pentagon don't understand how the state works or their adjun adjuncts, their subordinates <laughs> right, under, right beneath them? Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely understand how the state works. And our general doesn't ne necessarily need to be a keen observer of men. We don't need a Sherlock Holmes or a Dr. House out here who can just, you know, sniff out a liar at the first breath. I got you. You know, these incredible abilities. No, it's not required. Again, what we're, we're not trying to define genius here. Yeah, sure, a genius might need to be a super keen observer of men and very learned. But for our, just to just to do well, just to be a generally good general without being a genius, got to be a, a, not necessarily a keen observer of men, but you have to know those that are underneath your command. We don't have to know everybody, but we do have to know the people that we're supposed to take care of. What are their capabilities? What are their needs? You know, what's their opinion of us? What's their training level? These things are necessary. We need to know this about our people whether they be under our command or in most of the, the sports and communities that we play where you don't have a rigid chain of command, uh, our teammates, our unit mates, our realm mates, to know who they are and to have a, a connection there. It's important. A commander or a, a, you know, a team member, you, know, you don't have to be a logistical savant. You know, we don't have to be able to say, okay, well, I'm going to precisely calculate you know, how long, again, this wagon wheel is going to last or whatever the case may be. We don't need to be at that level, but we do need to know how to use the information available to say, okay, it's going to take me this long to move to this side of the field. It's going to take me this long to redeploy. It's going to take me this long to actually set up my forces to do what I want them to do. Because without that knowledge, again, plans don't work. We have to know what we're working with, we need to know how long we have to work with it. If I'm fighting against someone else, it is good for me to know how to throw my shot. I don't necessarily need to know trig. I don't need to have sat there and planned out everything about that shot, tested the temperature and the humidity of the air, the wind direction, the height of the sun, uh, if the moon is in Aquarius, those things are not important. We don't need to understand all of that stuff. What I need to understand is how to make that sword hit you to fight against somebody in something like 40k. I don't need to know absolutely everything about their army down to the letter. It'd be nice, 
but I don't need to know that. What I need to know is, can they resist what I want to do? Or what are their capabilities on handling what I want them to do? I, I, I don't have to know absolutely everything, but I do need to know how to make what I want to happen, happen. And this stuff is gained from an exercise of skill and from innate ability combined. Of course, when we're talking about our overall commander, we want them to be good at just about everything, or at least have a decent grasp of just about everything. But if we're putting somebody into a logistical position, not, not only do they need to be trained and experienced in logistics to be in a high logistical position, but they also need to have the proclivity to do so. There are people who just take to it naturally. They like making things go smoothly. They like that particular challenge, that particular intellectual challenge. And so those folks should be where they are. People who are super gung-ho, people who want to get into combat, people who are super into it should be on the front line, frontline commanders. Everybody has a niche. And so skill is necessary and innate ability is necessary. We got to match up with what we're good at. Like I was saying about the Gene Sealer cult before and, and the tactics and the kind of movement that I'm going for, it's got to be innate. It'll be skill. I'm going to be practicing with these guys and hopefully going to be developing some skill, but it's also going to come down to the innate abilities that I have as a war gamer. So through this section, we've been looking at really how to transform military science into an art form. Because this knowledge that we've been talking about, all of this knowledge, it has to become a part of ourselves. It has to be summonable at a moment's notice, what Clausewitz calls beat pulse decisions. In the span of a heartbeat, what decision do we make based on our experiences, based on our gut reaction, our knee-jerk reaction, based on the kudel that we've just exercised? That's when it happens. All of the knowledge that we have needs to be able to be distilled into that point, that single grain that is necessary at the time that it is necessary. We don't have time to consult our books. We don't have time to check the charts. When a decision needs to be made, it needs to be made. And at that point, we have to trust ourselves. But I know, at least for me, to trust myself, I have to have done my homework. I have to have come prepared because otherwise I won't trust myself. And so that's a part of my pulse beat decision. And this knowledge has to be something that can be converted into real power, not just abstract power. Again, I can understand trigonometry very well. In fact, I do. I taught math. I can calculate the distance of my sword tip to the other person's side and the, perhaps the arc that it'll go through and some, some calculus there. Yeah, we'll do with just some radians. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. But that knowledge can't really be converted into real power. Trigonometry by itself, calculus by itself, is not real power. Real power comes from knowing how to apply that knowledge and knowing that everything about that isn't necessary, really just the hypotenuse, point A to point B, boom. That's real power. Chemistry in of itself doesn't necessarily constitute real power. There's a lot of different applications of chemistry, but the ability to distill gunpowder and use that gunpowder to pro propel a projectile that's real power. So the knowledge that we have needs to be able to be converted, not only into real power, but into real power at a moment's notice, that beat pulse decision. And in tactics, this is limited. 
the, the requirements for pulse beat decisions, the require requirement for transforming things into real power, this is very limited and very e much easier to do. I wouldn't say very easy to do. Anybody who's found themselves in a tactical situation, and I'm, I'm sure people who have found themselves in real tactical situations would also agree that it is not a simple thing. Like, it is not. But there are limited requirements into making these, these pulse beat decisions. When you get up to strategy, it becomes far more abstract and there are far more va variables. And so these pulse beat decisions are far more complicated to make. They still need to be made. There's still moments where there's, there's a decision has to be made and it has to be made fast. And when that happens, we need to be able to rise to the challenge. And so the rest of this section really uh, kind of ties together when we look at this. We understand that there's no way to form a positive theory, something that works absolutely every time. So we instead look at the means and the ends that we want to accomplish and that we have at our disposal. We understand these better through experience and through analysis of them and understanding them in their individual forms. But of course, we can't let those individual forms become too complicated in our mind, so therefore we have to cut away the stuff that is not truly necessary. And we are assuming all of this as non-geniuses. If you are a genius listening to this show, I am honored, but it is also not necessary for you. The rest of us, hopefully, are getting something from this. And so we're, we're, when we're looking at that, the knowledge is important, but it needs to be applicable to the situation and to the station. And the knowledge needs to be simple, even though its application is not easy. And of course, a commander doesn't need to be perfect. They just need to be adequate. So, this is the end of this particular section. I'm looking forward to moving on, but it was a very interesting section to look over because he's got a, a lot of a very interesting points that he comes up with here, and, and most of them he expands upon later in the book. We still have a long way to go, gentle humans. But, to discuss these themes with me, and, and also just to kind of introduce us to other styles of wargaming. I know I talk a lot about Belagarth, I talk a lot about um, Warhammer 40k, but those are the ones that I really know. But our, our guest on, who I'm having on for Military Miniature knows a lot more about other types of war games that we don't that I'm not necessarily exposed to. So I'm very much looking forward to our interview in this next section with Jason Weiser. discuss these themes in the ending of this on the uh, theory of the art of war is the editor-in-chief of Military Miniature Magazine, Jason Weiser. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, gl glad to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, uh, Jason, how about you fill in the listeners on what your wargaming experience is? Well, uh, I've been a wargamer for about 38 years. Uh, it started with uh, Avalon Hills Tactics 2. My grandfather got that for me for my ninth birthday. And I think he regretted that decision ever since. <laughs> because <laughs> I, you know, I bought a lot of Avalon Hills staple and then you know, stable. And then it was a game designer's workshop and, you know, sort of spread out from there on the board wargaming side. Then I discovered role-playing games. And then eventually junior high came and I discovered miniatures, which I sort of, I got into that, and I've never looked back. And the, the two periods I game the most are uh, 
World War II and the war that never was, a.k.a. the Cold War gone hot. So when you say that you got into miniatures, uh, is there a specific game that it is called, or is there uh, just kind of a spread there's, out? There's a lot of rule sets for those two periods. Currently, what I'm playing right now is uh, Plastic Soldier Company's Battle Group. Uh, okay. I, that's for my World War II side. For the moderns, or Cold War, I guess you could call it, I have a variety of rules depending on what scale of stuff I'm playing with. If it's my 20s, I'm probably going to run my Ambush Alley stuff. If it's my, you know, uh, six millimeter, I'm gonna play Fistful of Toes Three by Ty Beard. Uh, you know, I've, it, like I said, on the historical side, people aren't married to sets of rules that much. You know, I, I, I think there's, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot more diversity of rule sets within a period than you might might find in science fiction. But you know, sure. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's. I mean, I don't know. I think more. I think science fiction universes tend to be more self-contained with the rule set, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, it absolutely does. Like if we're we're thinking about something like 40k, which is something we discuss on the show quite a bit, it is a, a self-contained universe. It's got its lore, it's got its system, it's got uh, everything going on. It doesn't have to consort uh, consult with any outside source to uh, to do anything else. It can be a kind of a self-reliance sort of thing. So I I can dig that. Um, well, it sounds like you have a, a decent breadth of experience uh, to be able to do the, the magazine that you do, this military miniature magazine. Let's, uh, let's hear about that a little bit. Well, um, military miniature magazine sort of came about uh, through kind of a happy set of, happy set of opportunity, I, I, I guess you would say. Um, I was hired by SJR Consulting, or excuse me, SJR Research. I always say SJR Consulting, but it's really SJR Research. A company run by our managing, our current managing editor Samantha Rife. She hired me to do paid blogging opportunities about wargaming. I was like, okay, cool. And she wanted to break into the wargaming market, so I wrote these blog entries. You know, I was paid re really well for what I did, and you know, then she started to ask me, what else can we do to break into the wargaming market? And I, the first words out of my mouth were, America needs a miniature wargaming magazine. What do I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the historical miniature wargaming magazines and even some of the sci-fi independent ones, they're gone. I mean, you know, look at what is coming out that's for the miniature wargamer right now. You've got White Dwarf. Where's that published? England. You've got, uh, right. you know, miniature wargames, uh, uh, you know, Wargames Illustrated, uh, Wargame Strategy and Soldier on the historical side. They're all published overseas. Nothing is done in this country right now, or at least it wasn't until we came along. And I think the American wargaming market deserves its own advocacy. It deserves its own, you know, story be told. And, you know, I remember for many years I was like, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. And then finally I realized, uh, oh, damn, that's somebody's me, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it often is. If we look around, and it's like, well, somebody needs to, oh, I, I noticed it. I must have to do that thing. Um, so so with the magazine, what, what are the goals? What, and what's the scope? What are we dealing with here? The scope is we want to be a, a magazine that, that's, that's focused on, on North America, but also is a magazine of practical use to a wargamer. I don't want to sit there and write articles about 
you know, uh, puff pieces about, you know, endless tracks about probabilities of six-sided dice or something that's going to bore a reader to tears. I want to write about stuff a wargamer's going to use. I want to write about uniform guides. I want to write about, you know, uh, scenarios. I want to write about, you know, you know, products coming out. I want to write about, you know, you know, how to run a really good convention game or, you know, just anything a wargamer might say, gee, I'm, that's really useful to know. And it sounds like it would be useful to folks across all stripes of intellectual wargaming as well. Well, there definitely is some crossover. Which is always nice. Again, I, I, I like the uh, the idea, and I think it's a, a noble pursuit. I've always wanted to break into some of the historical wargaming. As a, a military historian, I, I uh, could definitely dive deep into some of those time periods. No, I, I bet it's fun kind of getting to research and, and do the uniforms and kind of figure out the uh, the history there. I imagine that's a lot of fun. It it's, has its fun and it has its frustrations. Um, like, one of the periods I'm getting into is Russian Civil War. Well, I can honestly tell you, there's not a whole lot in English about it. And what's worse is even the Russian language sources, which I don't speak that very well, don't agree. So, <laughs> you know, often you're kind of looking at, you know, two different two photos of the same guy that have been colorized or artwork of the same guy. And one shade of color is different from another shade of color. And you're going, how do I paint this? <laughs> you know, you're just you're pulling your hair out. <laughs> best estimate. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. It is best. guess. And, you know, I think in a lot of. War, war gaming periods, especially the lesser known ones, it is best guess. And, you know, even some of the better known ones, you know, there's, there was an argument for many, many years uh, back when um, uh, Flames of War released their Blitzkrieg supplement on, you know, the early war in, you know, in France and, and Belgium and the Netherlands. They came out and made this claim that, you know, the German tanks were actually two-toed colors. That it was brown this dark brown and gray well i you know i immediately cracked open every book i had i said oh come on this can't be right this can't be right you know what it turns out they were sort of right <laughs> hmm. so you know it, it just it was it was kind of had you scratching your head going you know i mean and i haven't found a lot of photo evidence to back up one way or the other and it, it and to be honest, you know, it, it's just it, it's one of those rivet counting things that you get into in historical wargaming that maybe you don't have as much in on the science fiction side. Well, no, and something like 40k, especially uh, if you just do your own faction, which a lot of us do, you'll we'll, you'll play as dark angels or as uh, tyranids or something, but we'll paint up our own faction with the colors that we want it to have and just play with the other rules. But when you're doing something like historic wargaming, where your dudes need to look like the dudes from that particular side, yeah, that, that kind of disparate, uh, disparity between accounts, <laughs> between evidence, that's, uh, that's a whole other level of, of attempting to find that accuracy. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, then it's, of course, if you're doing 19th century and earlier, uniform dyes don't hold, have, don't have hold, they aren't holdfast dyes. 
So, you know, you're a few months on campaign and suddenly the uniforms begin to change color, fade, get dirty. Yeah, you know, you could go crazy on this. You really, really can. <laughs> so from your perspective, what 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 is appropriate here? Like there's a no lot of different knowledge that comes in. There's a lot of different information to deal with. But what would you consider appropriate knowledge for what you're doing? The knowledge that isn't necessarily going to interfere with the rest of the experience. Well, I think the first appropriate knowledge is, of course, know the rules you're playing. I mean, I'm not asking for encyclopedic knowledge. I mean, good God, it's why we all bring the book. But just have a working knowledge of what you're playing, you know? Don't be the guy who sits there, comes in cold, and asks how to do every little thing, unless you've actually never played the game before. If you've never played the game before, okay, fine, that's cool. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna knock you. But if you've played the game ten times and you still aren't quite, you know, cluing in, you know, pick up the book and read it a couple of times before you know you come and play. I'm not saying memorize it. I'm just saying get to know the rules a little bit. Do your homework. Yeah, do your homework. And if you're running the game, you should know it even better than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what about in terms of, uh, like, the, the knowledge for, like, the uniforms or the knowledge for uh, the, the way that the different weapons would have looked and been styled? How much, because uh, you said you can go to way, way deep into that, like the rivet counting. What do you think is, a, a, like, a reasonable level for that? I think I adhere to the three-foot standard, which is if the paint job looks good from three feet away, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you see these guys, you know, some of them are friends of mine, so if you're listening, don't hate me for this. Um, but, you know, you see these guys that are just painted so well that you get painting inadequacy. Like, am I in the right hobby? I can't paint like that. You know? Oh, yeah. And you sit there and you get that. And, you know, I would say to people, just because you can't paint like that doesn't mean you shouldn't pick up pick up a paintbrush, pick up some figures and paint. Just go do it. It's the only way, one, you're going to get any better at it. And two, it gets the army on the table. Okay? I mean, that's your main goal. Get the army on the table. Get it to a reasonably good-looking standard that people know it's... You know, it's it's uh, Napoleonic French, not World War Two Japanese. And, you know, right. you're you're fine. You know, I mean, you'll get better, you know, pick up some books on the subject, too. Believe me, it, you know, when I started in the hobby in the early 90s uh, and the on the, um, uh, you know, the miniature side, there was not the wealth of information that we have now on how to paint figures, how to base figures, how to, you know, uh, organize armies, how to, you know, just the amount of stuff out there available to the average gamer is incredible. And, you know, hey, we Military Miniature, we're helping, we're, we're, we're coming forward to help the average gamer, you know, curate, the, curate some of that information for him so he has some of that information at his fingertips and he's not sitting there, you know, going through a billion blogs on the internet. Well, that makes sense. Kind of bring it all into one place, make it a lot more simple to access. Correct. So with all of this knowledge, because so you're coming into it and you have a knowledge of the time period, you have a knowledge of, of kind of the, the game rules and how things are going to work out there. Um, 
One of the things that Clausewitz talks about in this section is what he calls pulse beat knowledge. And that's the knowledge that is right there at your fingertips. It, it comes unbidden. It has uh, been so practiced, so ingrained that it, it no longer uh, requires effort to really access. Is there pulse beat knowledge to this particular kind of wargaming? Ah, you know, there is and there isn't. I mean, you know, a lot of games, you know, after a while, you've been in the hobby long enough, and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I see this type of game before. Yep, I know how this is going to turn out. But at the same time, you know, it also leads to what that pulse beat knowledge, as you say, because you'll see this situation, and you know, okay, yeah, I've been snookered like this before, so I'm not going to do that again, you know? Right. But, you know, um, I will admit there are some gamers out there that whose names I won't mention um, who constantly, constantly snooker me. And, you know, they pretty much do the same thing and I fall for it every time. But so, you know, that pulse beat knowledge, it can be overrated. But at the same time, there are times I'll, I'll find myself, you know, hey, at, you know, at a table going, hey, I've seen this before. I know what to do. I know what he's trying to do. But it's not always. And, you know, that's a certain type of Zed I haven't seen in a lot of Wargamers. But it's there. It's there. You know, I've seen some. You know, and it's it's a very interesting quality to see in Wargamers versus professionals, you know, professional soldiers or that sort of thing. Well, it also kind of ties together with, with the idea of Kudel which is another uh, concept that we've been kind of discussing throughout several books. And that's the ability to, to look at a scene, to look at a situation and just have it, just immediately have it in your mind, not be able to have, like just uh, take that snapshot and know, oh, okay, this, this is the, this kind of terrain, we're gonna need to do this over there. Okay, the enemy's weak right here and just immediately make that decision. And I, I feel like that is also kind of this pulse beat knowledge in a lot of ways. And what you were talking about, you know, your your, your buddy who snookers you, as you say, uh, you know, starts to do that same tactic or the same strategy, and, and suddenly that knowledge comes in, just snaps in, and you're like, okay, well, I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah, there is that. You know, uh, there is sometimes, you know, what the Germans used to call, uh, I'm going to mangle the German really badly here, a finger festool plots or you know finger touch kind of feeling you know where they can you know just read the map and they realize hey okay this is the situation we know you know we've generally seen this before we generally practiced this before or we've you know we have a solution to this and that's where we all want to be is to have that kind of that knowledge and be able to have the response without needing to study. I, I can't remember, there was a recent uh, general uh, who had said uh, something along the lines of a, a poor plan executed violently now is better than a, like a perfect or a detailed plan tomorrow. Uh, That's, that was Patton. Um, and, Patton, yeah. Uh, yep. yep. I, I, I used to have that quote as a, as a uh, mail signature for a while. <laughs> Uh, because I, I personally believe in it. Um, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's better to just go with what you have than sit there and try to make it perfect. And that's just 
that's not just wargaming. I, I, I kind of believe that's life, you know. Um, now, you know, I will admit some people think I'm, you know, a little bit crazy in that sense, but it's worked for me. So, I, I was just kind of going to kind of slide into the idea of, I mean, both of us have worked with the government before, so we understand the, the KISS principle, which is, you know, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. And, and I think that that also uh, definitely kind of applies in these situations, not overcomplicating it. I mean, what we do is already complicated enough. We don't need to complicate it further. Um, oh, yeah. And I will say that um, there is a there is an anoxium in work in miniature wargaming. It is really easy to write a set of bad rules because <laughs> it is so easy. You, you, you don't think so, but it is because to me, the worst rules are the ones that try to cover every situation you will find at the table and do it in minutia that the game literally breaks down the first minute you try to play it because it's just it's collapsing under the weight of its own system. The hard ones are the ones that try to do hard things simple. Hmm. Where if they just tried to keep it simple, the actual game itself would not only move faster, but probably be more enjoyable, too. Exactly. Uh, one of the best examples I can point to in my own experience, and right now Ty is probably smiling as he hears this, is, yeah, Ty Beard's Fistful of Toes 3. It's all D6-based. It is ruthlessly fast. I mean, uh, in his own designer's notes, he put, yes... You know, I, you know, everything was cut for ruthless speed. It plays like it, you know. If you're hit, you fail, you fail your quality check, you die. If you're hit the right way, you die. It's, everything is, you die. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a really ruthlessly fast, um, bloody game that does modern warfare really, really well. And that's... You know, it's, it's a great game, and it's, you know, it's it's fast. Like, I think we've finished uh, two divisions in contact in about four hours. Well, I was, I was going to ask, I'm not uh, overly familiar with the style of war gaming that you do. Uh, how long is a typical game? Uh, well, I mean, it really does depend on, you know, size of the forces involved, uh, you know, how much time, you know, rules set, you know, how much time you really want to spend with this thing. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, anything over four hours or six hours for a convention game, and you're going to start losing players just because they're going to be like, yeah, I got to go. I got something I got to do. Yeah, my feet are tired. Yeah, I just, I got to go up back up to the hotel room and sleep this off. You know, so time management is a thing running running a war game it just is every minute you've got to really milk it and that's why i re again respect those you know keep it simple rules writers and keep it simple game masters who sit there and say okay i'm not going to sweat the small stuff i'm just going to get this game going and the small stuff will take care of itself if the rules are solid and if i've done my homework and if the if the rules, if this this higher uh, thinking about the game doesn't actually translate to to good practical execution, doesn't actually produce a smooth, enjoyable system, well then the all that theory, those books and encyclopedias worth of rules, it kind of falls short of reality in that case. Well, I mean, here's the thing. 
and I would say this to anybody trying to equate war games versus reality. That's a, I would say that's a fool's errand, and here's why. And this is my own point of view. You know, we try in our morale systems to reflect human psychology. It's not a perfect fit. You know, people react different ways when the bullets start flying. It just, it just is, you know. You can't predict which guy is going to stand his ground and which guy is going to drop his rifle and run screaming out into the night. You cannot sure. predict that, really. Um, you know, we war gamers, we try to model it the best we can. But I'll be honest with you, there are times, you know, when units that you wouldn't expect are going to last five minutes, put up a brave defense against all comers. And then the most elite units you ever saw, you know, you roll really badly on the morale roll and oops, they're taken off for the hills. Right. You know, and do we wait the, uh, the odds? Yeah, of course we do. We, we weight them with die modifiers. We weight them with likelihood of outcomes. But again, they're not perfect models. And the reason I say all this is because I recently reviewed a book called, you know, Battle Group Modeling. I'm not going to get the title quite right, but Battle Group, you know, Modeling the Unfought Battles of the Cold War. And it was written by a British officer, Jim Storr, who, you know, had played something like a few hundred or maybe even a thousand um games of war games research group uh modern you know modern tank battle rules and you know he had some interesting conclusions i don't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions but he had some interesting conclusions but i would honestly say how many of them beat reality i don't know you know i i, I like the book don't get me wrong but does it was it you know the be all end all no and I think that's kind of where, you know, military science, I tend to I tend to agree with the Russian definition of, you know, it being more operational art where it's a science, but it's only a science to some point because you're dealing with a hell of a lot of intangibles. Oh, that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely true. It's um, one of the points that Clausewitz was also making is the idea that tactics are way easier to form a solid theory for than strategy itself because tactics is how do we take that hill you know how do, how do we uh you know engage our unit against this unit in the best possible way and and make it be able to be something that we can repeat you know that's that's tactics and we can uh, the united states army has books upon books and we do training all the time on the tactics that work in most situations strategy on the other hand is this nebulous thing that relies on so many different things you got the logistical elements you got the intelligence elements you've got all these little tactical elements that feed into the overall means yeah strategy is a lot more a lot more complicated and I, I like the fact that you brought up that morale factor because that's again something that Clausewitz talks about is this idea of that's something you just can't prepare for you know there's there's nothing in our plans uh, that we can actually prepare for that that moral quality that human quality Oh, you know, it's not just the human quality. I mean, think about, you know, just pure dumb luck. Um, I'm trying to think of an, a good example of that. Okay. Um, you know, when they decided that, you know, they were going to use some saturation bombing to open up the final breakout from Normandy, they picked a sector, I think it was like 10 miles by 10 miles 
of a sector of the line that they were going to bomb the snot out of, and then they were going to send, you know, two armored divisions racing through to make the breakout. Well, it worked, sort of. And what I mean that it worked is, the first off, the bombers, you know, kind of tripped a little early, and some of the bombs hit, you know, the forward edge of American positions by mistake. So the attack went off a little late. Now, granted, the Germans were pretty badly, you know, shook up at this point. So, you know, even the attack being a little late didn't hurt all that much. But what really, really they couldn't plan for was that the head of Army Ground Forces, General Leslie McNair, had decided he was going to do an inspection tour of how his training methods were working in Normandy. Well... Mm. He goes to the front line, insists on observing the bombing from a front line position, and whoops, a bomb falls short. General McNair is killed instantly. This, you know, no, did it affect the war badly? No, not really. But it was something that Eisenhower or any of the planning staffs couldn't plan for. I mean, by God, we killed a four-star general because, you know... Somebody tripped the, you know, the bomb toggle switch a little early or late or the weather at 10,000 feet. You know, the wind shifted and the bomb went that way instead of this way. You know, sure. Those are the kinds of things you can't really plan for. You can make allowances. You can sit there and you can have predictive models and everything else. and But you can't. At the end of the day, things are going to go wrong. And this is, you know. I don't know. It's it's I think it's a, a you know, a divide between, you know, those who have been in, co you know, been around, you know, people who have been in wars and those who have not, you know, you know, I think too many unacquainted folks, they don't understand the unpredictability of war and why as as because it's so unpredictable and because it's so bloody, it's really a thing that we should che we should try to avoid you know? Oh, yeah. And oh, I yeah. think, you know, that said, um, I guess what I'm trying to say, and probably failing badly at it, is that, you know, it's hard to plan for that. It's hard to assume that. Um, you know, a, a very famous science fiction author said, um, you know, and th this man was in Vietnam, so he has certainly the authority to say it. He said, once you put a rifle in the hands of a 19-year-old kid, he's a policymaker, whether you want him to be or not. Yeah. That's a solid and, point. Yeah, and that's the point I'm making, is that, you know, predictive models, all of that stuff, it's great. But, again, we are war gamers. We are hobbyists. We are not going to sit there and be able to tell you with any great certainty. Uh, yeah, we know who's going to win in Ukraine or wherever, you know, the next trouble spot might be. You know, that's the professionals doing it down at Belvoir or over at, you know, you know, Carlisle Barracks or, you know, the Naval War College. They're the pros. They've got stuff we'll never see, you know, on the hobby For side. Sure. And frankly... And frankly, the stuff they do, we would need computer support that fills rooms. So, you know, we're just hobbyists who like to play with toy soldiers. 
It's, that is a little bit different. Like, like you say, we're sitting here trying to have a good time with our friends or go to a convention and, and enjoy ourselves. They're attempting to, uh, you know, put out models for what's actually going to happen, like actual lives engaged in actual combat. They probably need a little bit better toys. Yeah. They need a little bit better toys. They're, you know, people with PhDs and masters in operational research. You know, these are some very smart people who do very complicated things. And it is a form of wargaming that is removed from the hobby side. I mean, when you look at wargaming, you really have to look at it in two ways. You have the hobby side, which is people like you and me, and then you have the professional side, you know, who I've, I've met people on the professional side. I've had dinner with people who are on the professional side. And they are a whole different breed. Sure. Sure. Well, I uh, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. It looks like we're uh, we're about out of time here, Jason. But I appreciate you coming on uh, for this episode. Um, as I said, we're I'm uh, we're I'm with Military Miniature Magazine. We are the new North American preeminent uh, miniature wargaming magazine out there. Um, our subscription for us, and we're a digital only uh, project at this time, is twenty six dollars and twenty cents a year, or six seventy five an issue. Uh, we're publishing quarterly right now, but we're going to go bi-monthly in July. And you can find out more about us at www.militaryminiature.com. Again, that's www.militaryminiature.com. Thank you, everybody, and thank you for having me on, by the way. Oh, not a problem, Jason. And, uh, yeah, uh, thank you again for discussing these concepts with us. Uh, as for the rest of us, we're going to move on to our next section on the French Revolutionary Wars. Those of you in the future who have been listening to this straight through, this episode will only be one episode really removed from the previous history lecture, from the, from the previous time that we were talking about the French Revolutionary Wars. But for those of us who are experiencing it in real time, it's been a few months, at least two, I think, before we, or since we last talked about this topic. So let's get a small refresher before we jump into some new information so we all are on the same page, so we all know where we're, what we're talking about. If you remember, we're in the spring of 1793, the very earliest part of 1793, and France has its work cut out for it. It has uh, decided to upset a number of countries, a large number of countries, and they have uh, assembled a formidable coalition against them. You're looking at countries like Austria, Prussia, Sardinia, Piedmont, Britain, the Dutch Republic, Spain, Holy Roman Empire, all the big players on the continent are there representing, saying, I don't think so. And they outnumber the French massively. We're talking three to one at this point in terms of overall population. So the French are definitely in not a great space here, strategically speaking, but good luck telling them that at the time because they had really high morale. Remember that they were coming at this with their perspective, with their approach to this war, their idea that their revolutionary ideals, you know, this idea of fraternity and liberty and equality, that these are going to beat any despotic army, 
any mercenaries that are brought out by any tyrant are going to fall before the grandeur of the soldiers who are fighting for their ideals. How many times in history, just an aside, <laughs> how many times in history has, you know, a side in a war, whether it be like a, a religion or a government type or an ethnic group or whatever the case may be, how many of them have always said, we're going to win simply because of our ideals, simply because of what we believe and what they believe, we are going to achieve victory. What a silly sentiment. War cares not for sentiment or for belief. It cares for results. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, there's something to be said for zealotry and for fanaticism. It can absolutely be used on the battlefield. It can be a very useful tool, to be sure. But those ideals themselves do not necessarily mean victory. But... Again, try telling the French that. Uh, this whole idea of citizen soldiers, right? They, they have this, uh, that was a huge part of what was being preached at the time is that every single citizen was a soldier. Could be called upon at a moment's notice to defend the democracy that was forming there, the republic, excuse me. And then, of course, there was the weakness of the old regime that they believed in. This idea that, uh, you know, much like their old, their monarchy, which had become kind of ineffective at ruling the people, the other ones were the same. You know, the monarchies of, of Britain and Prussia, all of these folks would fall just as easily. They were all just as weak and could be taken apart from the inside. And so this is what they believed coming into it. And it seemed to be confirmed. You've got Jemaps and Valmy, where the Revolutionary Army did pretty well. I mean, not perfect, but did pretty well against armies that were either more experienced or larger in size. And myths spring up about this. Of course, there's dramatic retellings. You know, they don't talk about the, the missteps. They don't talk about the strategic mishaps that happened in either of those battles. They talk about the glorious charges, how their ideals were with them. I was about to say how God was with them. And it was like, no, <laughs> it was a secular state. But yeah, and so this, again, this myth springs up because who, who's there to deny it? You know, it's it's right there. It's something that uh, that everybody wanted to believe in. But of course, emotions are fickle, and even in this, there is a cancer growing in the core, because not everybody's on board, not everybody's down with what's happening here. Remember that this revolution was largely a revolution of folks inside the large population centers, inside Paris and Versailles. This is not a revolution of the country people. They've been strangely quiet, if you've noticed. They haven't participated much in the conversation. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And again, not everybody's on board with all this stuff that's been going on. But the general public has a pretty good feeling. And then the volunteers start to drift home. The vast majority of them had only enlisted for one campaign. And so the army is slashed. One estimate is that the army went from 450,000 to 350,000. And only about 200,000 of those were like serviceable in the field fighting types. That is a huge hit to their capabilities, especially with this coalition that's coming up against them. Like this next season is not going to be easy. You know, what they, what they have cut out for them is not, not great. And is going to require quite a bit. And so this hurts. You know, this reduction of force by, by a quarter, even by half, according to, to other estimates. 
And so the committee, the, the high committee that's, that's kind of making decisions at this point on the 24th of February in 1793, they vote to conscript 300,000 new soldiers, making the army much larger, basically doubling the size of the army and what it is. Now, I mean, it's, it wasn't a bad idea. They're going to need it. If you're looking at it, you look at the numbers, they certainly need to beef up their army. And if, if everybody is a citizen's sh- soldier, if everybody is supposed to, to kind of step up, then there should be no problem. There should be no problem. So conscription of 300,000. And they're going to take volunteers first, obviously. But then if a general area cannot produce those volunteers, if they don't have enough, you know, young persons or, or you know, fighting capable people, then... Appropriate measures are supposed to be taken to fill that quota. Appropriate measures, it says. Now, I don't know what that means. Probably meant different things in different places. Appropriate measures in some areas, which may be emptying out their jails. And another one, they may be, you know, choosing people by lottery or whatever the case may be. But appropriate measures to fill out this 300,000. Hopefully they wouldn't be needed, of course. Of course, hopefully there would just be volunteers. Hopefully these citizen soldiers would step forward. This conscription goes poorly. Goes very poorly. It's about 50% of the national average. About Only about 50% of that wanted 300,000 is recruited. And in some areas, you get far less than that. You know, 50, like that's about per region, only about 50% of what they were owed was collected. Some places you only had like 20 or, or 10% worth of that quota being fulfilled. So that's, that's not a lot. That's not great. And of course there's pushback. They're like, we, we need our people. We, we need this to happen. And these areas are like, no, we don't want to play. And there becomes some violent resistance in individual communities. We're talking these, these smaller rural communities. And it eventually kind of starts to snowball. And we're talking in the, the western region of France, specifically in the, like the Vendée region. And so these, these little individual resistances kind of come together into one organized re, re, like threat. And this army bears the name the Catholic and Royal Army, which I find hilarious. Because it was the first and second estate who were told to take a hike in uh, in revolutionary france and so they basically just they just put it right on the army catholic and royal first and second estate what so that 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 did not go according to plan the the committee was like hey we need three hundred thousand more volunteers and more, more soldiers oh we have a civil war on our hands great because remember that this counter-revolutionary sentiment had been it's not new you know, they move into an area, they'd be like, we bring our ideals. And then the people who were there that were just fine being ruled by their king were like, uh, okay. Waited for them to leave and then just went back to the old way of doing things. Why not? And so, but that's no different inside France. Outside of these areas like Paris and Versailles, where, you, where they're very, you know, leftist, where they're very forward thinking with all this stuff, you have far more conservative elements in the rural areas. That's, that's not uncommon. Even today, you look at it, that's, that's, basically the way it works. And again, not everybody was on board. There were a lot of forces behind this counter-revolutionary sentiment. A lot of things kind of fed into it. The first one is there's that innate hostility between town and country. Now there's normally just like a, 
I don't know, I would play, say, like a, a playful sort of uh, enmity between country and and the city folk. You know, the city folk will look at country folk and say, oh, they're simple bumpkins, you know, such things, and make derogatory uh, remarks about, you know, intelligence or education or whatever. And country folk are very quick to say, well, you know, city folk, they're way too complicated, or they're way too whiny, or they're way too, you know, full of themselves, or whatever the case may be. There's, there's always been these you know, stereotypes going back and forth between the two. In any civilization, in any society where you have a difference in population like you do between town and country. But that's hostility here. We're talking about open hostility between the ideals, between the people, between the, the systems that they have, what they look to. There's also the disruptive effects of modernization. There's a lot of things here that people are just not on board for. Remember that they're moving toward a secular state. There's a reason this is called the Catholic and Royal Army. There's a lot of folks that did not want a secular state. They were just fine having the Catholic uh, priesthood have a very high position and influence over policy. So this was not something that they wanted. And of course, modernization comes with a, a variety of things. And this, again, has happened all throughout history. Whether this modernization comes with new political ideals, new ways of doing things, new technology, even within our own lives. How many of us have been resistant to a new form of technology that's come into our lives? Whether it be, you know, email for folks who are really old, sorry, or TikTok for folks like myself who are like, I understand that it's necessary. I understand it's a huge part of the communication and of the zeitgeist right now. I should probably be doing more of it in order to promote this show, but I don't want to because it's a disruptive effect of modernization. <laughs> but that's what it is. You know, people get set in their ways. People, they, they have a way of doing things, a way that, you know, granddaddy taught him and his granddaddy taught him and, and all that sort of thing. And so when the shift comes for whatever reason, it's disruptive. Even if it's a step in the right direction, even if it's something as simple as saying, we're going to be watching everybody's crops for rot. And that's something that like the EPA or whatever is handing down. That's going to disrupt some people's lives, some people, their, their, their habits, their routines. Even for something that's very, very beneficial. Inoculating crops. So the modernization doesn't go well over for everybody. And then you have the material deprivation. Remember when we started this section, we started to talk about what like kind of caused the French Revolution in the first place. There were a lot of issues with food. You know, a lot of issues with food, a lot of issues with, uh, you know, transport of goods and people could be able to get what they needed and failed programs from the monarchy uh, to try to stimulate the economy, try to stimulate food and get it in there. These things had failed and they didn't do much better under the new regime. Recall that the majority of the political energy of the, especially the early regime that we're having here, this new, the, the new uh, uh, committee that we were talking about is mostly political. They're mostly trying to hammer out what they believe, who's in charge, whether it's the Jacobites or their hated rivals or whatever the case may be. They, this is where the majority of their energy was. It wasn't towards solving the problems. It was toward infighting. There were things that needed to be done. For instance, this particular problem, the food shortage, was one of the reasons the revolution kicked off in the first place. But here they are, not tending to the food shortage. So that's still happening. There were promises made coming forward. You know, these folks came up and they were like, we're going to fix things. 
we're the revolutionaries, we're going to tear down this old regime, and we're going to put something new in place, something better in place. And it's going to take care of all of the things that bother us, all that material privation, all that stuff, the, the unequal distribution of resources. We're going to solve all of that stuff. And even people who were not necessarily against it, but just kind of skeptical, would be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, I'm not necessarily a hardcore believer. I'm not going down to march in the streets, but that sounds pretty all right. As the time wears on and the little infighting continues and nothing, nothing is being done, that had to be crestfalling for folks. Especially people who are like isolated in their communities were like, hey, this is going to go well, and then it didn't. Oh, okay, hide your face. <laughs> so th again, this didn't help. The material uh, deprivation did not help in terms of the popular sentiment towards this cons conscription. In a lot of places, a lot of places, I don't know if you've ever been to France, quick aside, I don't know if you've ever been to France, but those of you who have, and those of you who are planning to do so, will notice the extreme plethora of churches, cathedrals for the most part, cathedrals and parishes and whatnot, it's very Catholic. And it's, it's a testament to how religious this country was at the time as an overall view. Again, within these, these centers, they believed that the, you know, the Catholic Church had too much power and these are very learned, educated people. For the vast majority of folks, they are still very much wrapped up into Catholicism being the way. It's the way they were raised. It's the tradition that they, that they experience. And so to have that ripped away from them, to be told that that does not align with the beliefs that are being projected, that their, their routines, their comforts in life have to be taken away because of this new morality, this new idea that's been put into place. This flies in the face of this intense religious conservatism. And it doesn't go well. It doesn't go over well. These are folks entrenched in their ways. They believe that they're right. They believe, and, it, and who's to say that they weren't? Who's to say that they aren't? It's just a difference of opinion, but the other opinion is being forced upon them. Even if it may be progress, even if it may be the step forward, the forced element of that causes resentment, and quite a bit of it. But even with all this, even with all these issues, this, this natural hostility between town and country, the modernization and the, the ripple effect that that was having, for better or worse, the, at the loss of materials and the continued hunger and such that was going on and the challenge to their ideals, the challenge to those religious ideals that were held so deeply and so dearly. The last straw was this conscription. You know, there, there had already been a, a fairly brimming pot here. Somebody had shaken the soda bottle and the conscription was just, just what it needed. Just that, that and out it all came because how are they supposed to defend their homes? There's all this talk of these, you know, marauding armies coming from all sides. You know, they're coming up north from, from Spain. They're coming from the east. They're coming from the west. They're coming from the south. They're coming from all over the place. And so if the logic is that they need to go and, and defend the motherland, how are they supposed to defend their homes, their, mo their mothers, their daughters, their wives, their children from these invading armies if they are elsewhere? in these revolutionary armies that they don't even believe in. So, there's a breakdown. 
<laughs> on that side of the country. And you get this Catholic and royal army that raises up in, the, in this western region. And unfortunately, this breaks it. There was this kind of illusion that these revolutionary ideals might hold. That their universal truth might apply and stay there. But the claims of the French citizen soldier, where every citizen of France was supposed to stand up and, and defend the fatherland, would willingly sacrifice their, their home and their health to make sure that the country was served first. This was proven false. And what was proven in this process, and as, as the Civil War kind of spread and became more intense in some regions than others, that there was no unity whatsoever. This idea of fraternity, of this country being marching forward side by side, this was just not the way of it. And until this point, that wasn't as obvious. You know, when we're talking about the Cuban Revolution, I like to go back to that. A lot of different forces going forward. They were mostly just revolutionary. They were against the Batista regime. But then after that, it was like, okay, you know, there's communists, there's capitalists, there's royalists, you know, the, the, probably not royalists, but there's a bunch of different competing ideas that suddenly start to implode upon themselves because it was never agreed beforehand what the core idea was going to be. And so without, without this, like, that pressure that was coming before, remember that when you had the pressure of the army approaching Paris and everybody kind of forgot how much they hated each other <laughs> and focused on the exterior threat, that's gone. So the unity breaks down, there's widespread disillusionment with the cause, with the method in which the cause is carried out, with the committee itself. And yeah, as we're going into the, the spring of 1793, it's not looking great. We're coming off of that high at Jamaps and Valmy, and we're starting to come into some pretty rocky waters here. And eventually there has to be a violent reconquest of these dissident areas. And it is done with absolute butchery, the kind of butchery that can only come with fanatical belief that the other person is evil, that they are intrinsically flawed, that their soul is corrupt. Only when these things are believed can true atrocities take place. And I know that we're supposed to be pressing forward with these uh, wars of the coalitions, and we absolutely will. I'm not saying that we're not going to come back to it, but I did actually want to take a brief aside next episode to explore this pacification campaign. It's a nice way to put it in, in Western France at this time, because there's a lot of really cool battles that take place and several places where the new French Republic really show their face and really show how this fanaticism can hobble an army and can hobble a cause. So I'm actually, my idea at first was to put them both together, was to, in this episode, discuss what we already have, and then also discuss this uh, revolt over there. But as I've been reading through it, I don't think I would have been able to do it justice in the last 10 minutes of this section. And besides, we're just getting back into this. I want to make sure that we're stretching, making sure that we're going easy, not doing it too hard. Like, I understand that your ears are probably aching at this point, need to limber them up and... You know, my vocal cords are, they're doing fine, let's be honest. I just talk all day anyways. But that's kind of where we're at right now. And uh, going forward, we're going to see how these ideals uh, meet with reality. How this, this theory 
these positive theories do when they actually meet reality itself. So I'm looking forward to exploring this a little bit more with you and to kind of delving into the very dark chapter of this story that is the pacification of Western France. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.